Welcome to Aperture. We're in conversation with the people thinking and doing things differently. If you like the podcast, please check out our other content on aperturehub.co. Welcome to the Aperture Podcast. This podcast is part of our series on the future of work. I'm here with Garrett Cassidy, who is CEO of Trezio, who are building a financial safety net for the self-employed. We are also here with Jonathan Key, who is co-founder of Labour Exchange, a platform to help underemployed people earn more. And lastly, we're here with Gareth McNabb, who is co-leader of Open Banking for Good at Nationwide, which is not just the UK's largest building society, but that's actually also the world's largest building society. Gareth, talk to me about the life, the day-to-day life of a co-leader of Open Banking for Good. Sure. So uh, my role within Open Banking for Good uh, is many and varied. Um, I am first port of call for the six di- five different fintechs who are part of the program for uh, anything they need out nationwide. I am responsible for finding um, uh, colleagues within nationwide who can provide support to the fintechs as they grow and scale their products, services and solutions. Um, I'm also responsible for our relationships with uh, the advice sector and charities who provided us with really, really valuable input from even before Open Bank for Good publicly launched and coordinating the series of workshops that we've been putting on for the successful fintechs who are part of our incubator. And the five fintechs are, th- these are, these are, are these two of them here? So I there's one. Yeah. Uh, there are four others. Who are? Uh, Openworks. Okay. And Tully and Doucet and Tupin. And how much of your time is spent on the fintech program? So uh, about a third of my week is involved in activities that directly support in the fintechs. About a third of my week is involved in scaling and supporting through nationwide. And a third of my week is picking up the tasks that fall out of those two. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, so, so you have one of the coolest and probably biggest impact jobs at nationwide, would you say? It's definitely one of the coolest. Um, since I joined Nationwide nearly five years ago, I've been telling everybody, including our chief exec, that I have the best job in the building. <laughs> um, and he didn't disagree with me. <laughs> is that a strategy to get better paid? Or is that... Well, my life balance is through the roof. Um, it, uh, job satisfaction is through the roof because I, I'm on a mission to help improve the lives of people who are financially squeezed, doing what I can to have a meaningful difference to people who live lives impacted by poverty and problem debt. And the fact that I can earn a living to do so, um, particularly in this um, innovative way, leveraging the best of fintech, charity world, and large financial services to help make a meaningful difference to 12.9 million people financially squeezed, I'm the happiest man in nationwide. I think. Um, so, Jonathan, what you're trying to do at Labour Exchange is the same as Gareth's trying to do through his job, which is help those who are financially squeezed, right? Yeah, completely. Um, we 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 have a self-designed poster like I did um, and it, it says something really simple it says uh, you know are, are you in a corner do you need more money take out a payday loan big red cross sell your stuff big red cross work a bit more when it's convenient to you a big tick um, 
so we, we, we share the same mission at Labour Exchange. The only different angle we take is instead of uh, cutting down your costs or or the you know claiming more benefits, you can actually have a better standard of life by getting that little bit of extra work that fits around your life. That's our entire mission. It just tell us how you started this. So the you know the eureka moment you had when you realised that this was a gap, and you could help bring labour that's underutilised into the marketplace. Um, Garrett's heard this story quite a few times. But well, listeners probably haven't, so that's, that's okay. It's, uh, Garrett, sorry, man. You can uh, yeah, switch yeah. off for a Suck it up. <laughs> um, it was when I sat down and I, I had a grown man in tears in front of me saying he can't afford to buy his daughter a pair of school shoes or he's not going to eat that week. And that was off the back of uh, someone who was on a 15-hour-week contract at a supermarket um, who needed more hours to work but they can't get the work because their rotor changed every Sunday. So he was caught um, in a job. So he was a statistic that actually he's employed, he should be fine, but he's not. He's earning far, far too little money um, and he can't do anything to top it up. And having previously run a catering company, I know there's lots of companies out there who needed him for certain hours. So. Uh, it wasn't so much a eureka moment as a cliff edge moment that I jumped off and I realised actually for a lot of people there is a very dark chasm and they are trapped in it. So what Labour Exchange does, it, it's basically a, a ladder out where that person can on an hour by hour basis say when they're free and then businesses tap into their time. So you create that win-win. They get the work, the business gets um, the extra staff and we work on the basis that no one is lazy. Very few people in this country are lazy, they just haven't got the chance. But businesses aren't evil as well. Give a business a chance to do the right thing that doesn't screw over business, and they will. And that's what Labour Exchange does. And so, for somebody like that gentleman you're talking about, whose rotor changes every Sunday, so on a, when, he, when that person knows their rotor, they then list the, yep. the three hours that they have the following And that's all they do. Right. Uh, there's uh, one of the things we, we have on our platform for very little written English, because we've realised that is a massive barrier for people. Um, so he lists when he's free next week and it could be one hour. Now previously a recruiter won't touch him and most work platforms won't because you can't make money from that one hour because we've automated everything you can. So he lists it for one hour or two hours or five hours when he's free and then when a business has a demand they search for the hours they need, the people come up and they click book and it's that simple. Is that there's lots of people want the work and there's lots of businesses who need the staff. Why aren't they connecting? And that's what we do, we help that connection. Perfect. And so the connection with Trezio is because Trezio were on the nationwide um, incubation program. And for you, Jonathan, the connection with Trezio is you're now looking to adopt the Trezio service for the users on Labour Exchange. More than look at we are adopting like Trezio. Are adopting. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, as a cast iron. Um, because there is a substantial need for people to be supported. Um, just because you're self-employed doesn't mean that you're a second-class citizen. Um, you should have the same benefits and packages that an employee gets. And that's where Tracio comes in. Gareth, so if you wouldn't mind just elaborating on what Jonathan's saying there with yes, the same so, bundle of benefits. So, so the real key piece here is, as people shift from traditional employment or a mixture of employment and self-employment, 
they're leaving behind what what a lot of employers would have provided in terms of you know holiday and sick pay and then also workplace insurance and pensions and all of that kind of thing and also the the fact that they then in that model they fit into what the system expects whether it be, you know banks building societies you know it, they fit the, the traditional model of what a worker is and therefore can access products by stepping into kind of self-employment they step off that they effectively step off a cliff and don't and lose lose those protections and lose the kind of the, lose the fact they no longer look like a a customer that banks can service so what we're really trying to do is rebuild that almost from the ground up starting with helping them kind of manage their cash flow through variable income but also importantly then starting to add the protections like personal you know income protection type disability insurance so that if they do have a long term ac an accident that causes them to be out of work for long term they're protected and building that towards longer term savings and pensions and things like that in the future so that we can effectively get to a point where you know people don't have to trade their kind of flexibility for financial security. So I just want to take a slight step back, right? So the, the, the thing that unites you and uh, is that you're focused on the world of self-employment. And would you agree that there's a structural trend towards greater self-employment? And what is it that's causing that shift? So maybe, Gareth, if you could start us off. And seeing opportunities where the benefit system 15 years ago had that cliff edge on 15 hours so excellent we can offer lots and lots of 15 hour contracts that people will flock in for those and they won't want the 16th hour we can look like we're making a dent on employment numbers but actually it just suits us as a massive corporate to have a low cost base on our workforce so i see this isn't nationwide analysis this is me i see there's a there's a positive thing around the generation that's entered the workforce in the last five to ten years that platform work and so on can really, really suit, and self-employment can really, really suit. Um, but I think it's also a fallout from some social policy changes at government level in terms of uh, benefits and, and employment rights. And I think one of those is a very, very good thing, and the other one is one to watch very carefully. And Jonathan, come to you. What do you think is the relative balance between the I don't know, it's crude to call it the good form of self-employment and the bad form of self-employment, but, but you know, picking up the idea that there's a positive and negative. And I think you might argue that there's a, there are demographic aspects to it, right? So depending on regions of the country, maybe gender. So what's your view on the sort of relative balance of good and bad self-employment? Before I answer it, I just want to go back slightly. Please. Um, because I, one of the things I'm quite passionate about is that the modern argument that the world of work is changing more than it ever has, I actually think is a fantasy. I think the world of work has been changing dramatically for the past 30 years, and we blame technology that it's exasperated it, but it's not. So I started this business off the back of someone on a fixed hour, 15 hour contract. So there's always been this how supply and demand kind of thing and actually I think people were more exploited on zero hour contracts and 15 hour things because it was very fixed the business got everything they want so I think we're actually in a period where we have an opportunity to make things better than what they were I actually think the flexibility can be there so the demographic on our platform 30% of people are over the age of 55 um, so it's not just the, the young people, 
it's and we focus purely on uh, blue collar workers because generally they're people who get forgotten about because you can't make a lot of money for them. So they're not people who um, want to necessarily changing the world isn't on their agenda it's actually having a balanced good life where they can bring up their kids and they can do that kind of stuff now there is an opportunity there for those people there's an opportunity there for businesses to use those people's time and there's an opportunity for those people to use their time in a way that they want now for the first time i actually think in 50 years we're having an honest conversation and we we can make it work for everyone where it hasn't been. I think this is a complete fantasy. There's been a lot of people on part-time work who wanted full-time. There's been people on this kind of contract. Well, actually, I think with the technology we've got now, we can shape the world of work where it does work for everyone. Um, but you have to be, uh, you know, self-employment can be used as a way to cut costs because you don't pay employers national insurance contribution, you don't pay this, you pay. Or it can be a way of giving that flexibility and through companies like Trezio, you can have that support package as well. If you look at self-employment as a way of cutting costs, for want of a better word, the country is up Poop Creek without a paddle. If you look at self-employment as a way of actually getting the workforce to where it needs to be in a way that helps industry but also helps the individual, then I think you know it's sunny uplands for everyone, but we have to take that bold approach. This idea of, because I, I 100% agree with what you said, which is I think if we, I don't know if we would, if we were to portion sort of percentage of blame for where we, you know, where this, this situation at the moment, I think technology only accounts for a small part, I would agree. But if we can use technology to change this situation from being sort of zero sum to positive sum where self-employment is empowering, self-employment brings autonomy and flexibility, but it doesn't mean sacrificing that, that, that bundle of traditional benefits, then it's very much a positive sum game. And that's, so Garrett, I just want to hear your, yeah, so because this is what's driving your mission. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is what's driving the mission is the piece around effectively putting self, self-employed in control of that. And more importantly, giving them the tools so they can be in control. Because, you know, if they're just, without the tools, they spend most of their time just trying to manage their money week to week, trying to understand where it's coming, where it is, and really struggling. So it's give them, first of all, give them the tools so they can manage better, and then give them the access to other products. And what we're seeing very clearly is, you know, people need workers. That's, you know, that's driving companies to do things, you know, like labour exchange in terms of taking a very a very enlightened view and saying these are services that should be, these are, these are protections that workers on, pl- on platforms should have. More and more, you know, platforms and companies who engage self-employed are seeing that and seeing that actually if they're going to have these workers of the future, they are actually going to have to, you know, move, move up and actually provide, you know, access to the supports necessary. But it's in a different way because because these people because they work for multiple different places in multiple different ways. You can't just attach it to the the company who are providing the work. It's really difficult for them to provide those services because you end up then with a horrible fragmentation. So it needs a world where where those kind of services actually live with the worker themselves, so they can pick what's right for them 
and and over time we will and we're already starting to see it we'll see companies starting to contribute to them like traditional employers would have but but giving the giving the worker the control to pick what's actually important for them and be able to aggregate and top up if necessary so the idea of giving the worker more control more tools this all sounds sort of very admirable and it feels like it's we're moving in the right direction by doing that but at the same time, I don't think we want to devolve all responsibility to the individual, right? Because this has to be a collective effort to rebuild the safety net. So I guess starting with you, Jonathan, what's the role of platforms in this? What, what do platforms need to do to empower individuals to be able to better provide for retirement and rainy days and and accidents and all the other things that they would have got as part of an employment contract. A weird connection, but there is a point to this, honestly, is during the financial downturn, there was a substantial less redundancies than what everyone thought. And the reason is companies realized that actually good staff are hard to come by. So they prefer to take a financial hit and keep the good staff. Now, all these, all the platforms, they're gonna get into a situation where they're going to run dry of people unless they up their game. So they've got to take a lead in going, yes, okay, you're self-employed, but we have got to provide a base around that self-employment where you are supported. And that's exactly what our mission is, is, is that, yes, you top up your income, but actually you're not left by yourself. Um, because I always go on about bandwidth. When you've done 45 hours a week, your bandwidth is limited. You're not gonna wander off and find this support package. We have to be honest and we have to say, you have a responsibility. And if even if they're not your employee, you have a responsibility to that person because they are using your service and you've got to support that. And the platforms who don't do that, it's gonna be like a desert wasteland for workers going on there um, and they will fail. So implicit in your answer is the idea that effectively platforms will have to self-police because otherwise they'll be sanctioned by by the market in, in, in but, but when i look at your platform i think it's got some really interesting and really positive characteristics right that for example that you've you've got an element of data portability right you've got the you've got the ability within the platform for people to build their own profiles and therefore to bid up their own um, hourly rate and I suppose you've done that in anticipation of the fact that it's going to become harder and harder every time to attract the best workers. But so you wouldn't advocate, therefore, for that those kinds of um, platform elements to be standardised and made sort of obligatory, if you like, across platforms. Um, I, I, I think if you did that, it's like bludgeoning something to death. You'll do legislation. And, and one, let, let's, let's be really frank and honest. The people who start tech companies are some of the smartest people on earth. And they'll always be five steps ahead of people doing legislation. And I think we need to be honest about that. So what we need is a collective thing where, as a society, everyone comes to go, and actually, there is a push on standards because that's what we want to do. Not because we've made a law, because there will always be a loophole around that law, always. And someone will always find that loophole. So if we push in that direction, then these people are going to have no choice. Everything will get better. Um, and I, I really do see that. Um, so I, 
we, we always talk about a race to the bottom. I think it's going to be a race to the top. So our onboarding costs for individuals are pennies. So we have that as a market advantage over any other platform, and that's because people get treated better. And the more we do things like support them, the more they get stuff like that, the lower onboarding costs are going to be and the more of a market advantage we'll have. Gareth, what's the role of financial services providers like Nationwide in this new world of self-employed? Is it? Are you merely providing a sort of intermediary so aggregated service to link people to to to, to um, products like Trezio, or is it a financial literacy type um, relationship with those customers? What is the role of Nationwide in helping these new self-employed people navigate this new world of work? Uh, I think the role of financial services in the main uh, is to see this balance between opportunity and responsibility, which I'm hearing a little bit in what you're saying, Jonathan, that. Um, and in your pushback that it's not that there's a responsibility on platforms there's an opportunity that if they take it now they can actually they can shape what this regulatory framework would look and feel like and then if consumers and uh, workers need the protection of that being formalized well here's the thing that's working for the top three platforms codify that then everybody gets good standards and, and I think similar within financial services there's a balance between a responsibility on us when you see segments of a market not being able to access and navigate that market effectively, like the self-employed, um, there's a number up in our office, isn't there, Garrett? Something along the lines of 6% of self-employed access the insurance market compared to high 50s, 60s of full-time employed of any type of insurance. Now, when it comes to keeping a car on a road, it's a legal requirement. When it comes to keeping your contents insured against theft or fire or whatever, um, many people see that contents insurance is an optional extra that if I can't afford or I can't be properly risk priced for, then I, can't, I don't need to have. But that shouldn't be some, a choice you feel forced into because the market can't price you properly. That should be an active choice you made, knowing all the factors and the um, financial services firms you went looking at, knowing all the factors about you too. That should be a choice, not a you're not compelled to opt out of mainstream insurance market. So there's a there's a responsibility to make sure no single segment of the economy goes underserved or without access to the financial services products we all need to survive and thrive. Sounds like I'm quoting a song, doesn't it? Um, but um, then there's an opportunity, I think, to work out what that actually looks like. Um, we have a very active regulator in financial services who doesn't mind being relatively interventionist uh, when it suits them, um, and that's a good thing for consumers and I think a good thing for financial services. And it gives those forward-thinking financial services firms the opportunity to, as I've suggested, platforms might want to, to preempt that regulatory push spot this gap that's kind of in the middle of is it personal current account banking with a couple of added services is it business banking light what is it well we kind of don't know because we don't really know how to describe these self-employed people who aren't quite self-employed or these are they gig are they platform are they topping up what are they doing well they're kind of in the middle of being personal customers and business customers and rather than trying to force them into the categories we have currently in financial services there's an opportunity to work out what we do in the middle while the regulator also pays attention to underserved segments of the market. So um, I think what we've done with Open Banking for Good, taking a new technology, inviting new fintechs and offering some support to help them develop the services and products that they are, is a really good example of how you stimulate interest and innovation in that middle space. 
gives a really interesting challenge to us nationwide as sponsors of the program but also to wider financial services to say hey there are products growing here services growing here there's a need here now whether an untapped need is a is a market draw to you all the potential regulatory pressure in the future is a draw to you whichever floats your boat mate come on in and let's work on building something that works for this this middle group of people and what is what is your role there so is it about helping customers to discover these new types of services so yeah you did, you, you did, you did ask about financial yeah. literacy didn't you and um, i have a personal bias against any suggestion that um, information remedies are a good idea yeah. giving consumers more information they will make better choices and well that puts all the blame for their choices on the individual consumer and Jonathan, you've already mentioned bandwidth the financially squeezed are the same problem whether they work 45 hours or not if they're taking any serious time each week to balance their weekly income against their monthly outgoings and make that fit um, that's not something i have to do i get paid monthly my bills go out monthly everything works fine for me so i've got space to daydream about paying for my kids to go to uni where i'm going to go to holiday next year my avc's on my pension but that same bandwidth that i have available for my long-term financial planning the self-employed the gig worker doesn't have available to them even though they may very well have the money and the financial literacy and the the, the wits about them to do so they've exhausted that bandwidth on making the day-to-day -day and the week-to-week -week work so there might be a connecting kind of role to play and we're going to yeah, work I mean, some you, of this out you over providing there. that bandwidth by recommending the right products and services yeah and so when tech can lift some of that joining the dots up between my weekly earnings and my monthly outgoings then it releases the rest of the bandwidth for humans to do for humans to flourish and do what they're great at which is making human connections and dreaming about the future and changing the world um, or at least their work their bit of the world i think there is a bit in terms of working to design products that work there is a little bit about making sure our members as nationwide and the financial services industry as a whole is aware of products and services that work here. I, th I think there's a lot of work to do before that in terms of surfacing the need and doing things like this kind of engagement, doing things like Open Banker for Good, doing things like uh, your podcast to help raise awareness of, look, these aren't the... Um, uh, the zero-hour zombies of the early Cameron years. These aren't the um, Conservative Party statistics of how they managed to persuade everybody that we, we're nearly at full employment. These zero hours isn't the bad thing that the Labour Party might make people feel like, uh, actually, there's some people feel forced into this and there's many made an active choice. We must, it must, can't be beyond the wit of man to make this work for humans. Yeah. So let's work on making it work rather than insist we go back to the 60s so i think there's some stuff there um i i am like i say i'm resistant to the idea of just flagging hey have you heard of trezio have you heard of this have you heard of that but i think there definitely is a role does banking move into being a platform but there's there's some arguments that say it should go that way it's going to have to either go banking is either going to need to go towards being a platform that other um, uh, services and so on sit on or it's going to need to create its own service to sit on other banks platforms and in the world of open banking that very much is the future ecosystem it, it, it's one of the reasons why we initiated the program in the first place was um, our chief exec described open banking as the uber moment for financial services after this from this point forward financial services looks totally different forever um, and we want to make sure that um, we're not we don't have these new products and services done to us. We want to be participating in the creation and creating and fostering of those services and products. What do you think, Garrett, should be the role of institutions 
like nationwide in helping self-employed people to navigate better their financial management? I mean, the key piece here is certainly in the UK and in most developing markets, these people are banked. So they have bank accounts, but they're underserved beyond that because they don't fit in, in the matrix. I think it's important that kind of, you know, banks and institutions like Nationwide, you know, st you know are, are open to the fact that things have changed. You know, workers don't fit in the, in the boxes that they traditionally fit in. And, and then either, either it's, it's opening up to that and recognizing that there's a very different proposition, or it's the platform approach of bringing parties in who can, who can do it. So banks, insurers, etc., would traditionally have dealt with the large employer to help them you know, engage, you know, some of the, particularly on the insurance side, some of those products were sold through employers effectively with how they get to people. The employers, that, that traditional employer isn't there anymore and even, and I'm not trying to go back, even the platform can't play that role because you're no longer in this kind of singular, I work, as Gareth said earlier, I work for somebody for life, I have one job. So it, it, it's, the, one approach is, you know, get every one of the, the new platforms to do the same as employers do. But actually that doesn't work because you end up with massive fragmentation and the worker ends up with all sorts of unexpected gaps. Um, so I think it's really, the first bit is just is, is actually recognizing, which I think there is a recognition now that the world is, the world is changing. And I'd agree with uh, Jonathan, it has, it's not this year or last year, it's been changing for a long time. It's just, it's kind of accelerated. Um, and also the whole platform discussion on the bad side has probably brought it to the surface which isn't necessarily a bad thing because it's brought it to the surface to actually be addressed. Something that in reality was under the, co un, you know, probably slightly below the surface for a long time. Self-employment's been around for a long time. Some of the sharp practices have been around for a long time. Um, there's now some very large, large things that people can focus on and say, how do we fix this? Um, and how do, so that's, it, it's, I don't think there's any one sim simple answer though. But the reason I ask is because I think there's a, I think it's a two-way street, isn't it? With a with a with a platform, I'm going to call you a platform, a financial services company like Nationwide, yeah. because you want a route to markets through those guys because they've got millions of customers. But on the same time, I think there's it's it's not just that they that you might want as Nationwide to offer the Trezio service. It's also that if you're going to be able to sell some traditional financial services, you almost need a platform like Trezio to to get those self-employed people in a shape where they become bankable for some of your products, right? It's been one of the ideas behind open banking from the beginning is um, does, uh, as a lender, does having sight of somebody's uh, full suite of current accounts help you assess them for lending? Does that help you lend to more people? Does that help you lend more quickly to more people? Does that help you uh, give quicker, faster declines if things are definitely not there? Um, and. And that's probably right for some parts of the market, but again, that's going to help people with money and choices accrue more money and more choices more quickly. Um, I think it will help some people who are on the margins of affordability um, checks on lending, but just sight of the current accounts won't necessarily help mainstream lenders who have set risk scorecards and matrices um, make sense of uh, gig workers fluctuating yeah. hours and work and different platforms, me uh, mechanisms of paying. And so I think 
both and i think there is room for lenders to loosen up and get to grips with how do you risk assess these new types of people and at the same time as we're learning those lessons partly through open banking technology um, there's got to be room for income smoothing um, but it seems to me that so one of the so we, we interviewed some of uh, the Trezier users today and a common theme was that Trezier is helping them to build a credit score because because it's providing credit and it does so without doing maybe some of the so ex-ante checks that you know traditional lender would do and so that's what I meant by once they've got that credit, credit score through Trezier they then become eligible for the kinds of you know let's call them higher value products that Nationwide could offer them so it's almost like Trezier isn't just seeking a route to market through Nationwide and providing a service that might be useful you know, for income smoothing, it's also getting those, ind those individuals into um, a, you know, creating the sort of necessary underpinnings for them to be able to access a broader range of financial services. Yeah, the sooner it looks to us as a lender, like you have a steady disposable income, and the sooner you have the realisation of that as a, as a consumer or a potential borrower or potential insurance purchaser, the sooner we both have that awareness of each of your budget that you have an amount of affordability and you have a need that you need to meet um, we can more quickly build products and services that will meet those needs because we can see what's what's affordable to be able to pay um, and, and that comes with the greater visibility that open banking provides but it also comes with a greater um, awareness that things like Trezio give you as a consumer of oh I do I do now normally earn this much I do now normally have this much spare most weeks. When I don't, it's smoothed out for me through a savings buffer or through credit or whatever. And now I know the thing, I, and now that the bandwidth problem is also being sorted, I can daydream about mm. beginning to save towards the deposit. That pension my mates in full-time um, traditional employment have that I don't know I don't, but always thought I couldn't have because I'm self-employed. No, 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 you can have you've got some disposable funds and you've got some bandwidth, you can now go and search the market. And by the main banking providers being involved in that, we can help get to more people more quickly to help them engage in those kind of products because everybody deserves to be able to think about their future and choose to plan for their future. If they choose not to, it's a choice, uh, but they deserve the right to choose about planning for their future. Now, until you've had your income smoothed and there's some kind of disposable income identified and the market's created products for you, um, it's not really a choice, is it? The self-employed goes without a pension and the self-employed mm. goes without some insurances and the self-employed goes with some of, without some important personal and family protections. Um, uh, people in full-time employment are worth a lot of money dead, aren't they? Five, six times their salary yeah. plus in work, uh, like death in service benefits and things like that, and, and that's without parting with any money to purchase any other kind of protections. You, you just think, well, look, that's an awful lot of families that are going to be going without something that 20 years ago most of us would have got. Um, that's not quite right. But So I think it's not just on us to be able to have a greater visibility of your finances, it is on new services and products like Trezio to smooth some of your finances, to make it a bit easier for the, yep. uh, for the incumbents in particular to be able to score you for mainstream products. Can I jump, because I, 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 I see this as one of the beautiful things that's happening at the moment with tech, and you touched on this. It's the case that the benefits and the services follow the user instead of the user trying to access them. Now that's massive, so if, if you look at income flattening. Before, if your wage drops, you have to apply for a loan. It's a very 
binary process this has happened where now what you're saying is the benefits follow the user so wherever they go that benefit is with them so and that's only because the technology is here because those insurance packages you're, you're right they'd sell it to the company and then the company gives it because it's paper-based it's expensive where with technology and uh, you know stuff like Trezio is doing it follows that user so suddenly there's a whole raft of services and stuff that people can access seamlessly throughout their life. And it's an ideological point of view. So is it a case that the user comes to us and it's a binary decision process, or is it a case of this is there for them and it follows them around? And I see how you know, this relationship works, and I'm, I'm pointing to <laughs> Garrett and Gareth. So I see how the, there's, there's a sort of a common interest, mutually um, beneficial for you guys to work together. How does an individual through a platform like Labour Exchange get access to something like Trezor? Is it an opt-in service? Is it way employers make themselves more appealing? Like how, do, how does it, is it white labelled? Is it, is it branded? How, how practically does something like Trezor get accessed by users? So the first thing we're doing with Trezor is for the care sector yeah. and we're approaching it as a, this comes with our platform. So you get access to this. And uh, that's built into our cost model of our uh, local authority partners. And there, there's a reason for that. Well, one, care has got a really bad reputation. There's not enough people. So anything you can do to make it better. Um, but if you look at the nature of domiciliary care, it's actually a very self-employed industry. So you go to someone's house there and you go to another person's house there. So actually, who's the employer? Why is the employer? And one of, uh, this is my personal opinion, and apologies if it offends anyone, but you have agencies sitting in the middle who make a lot of money from what is technically a self-employed relationship by making it not, by making them an employer, they take a lot of that pie. So if you can accept it as a self-employed relationship, but put those benefit packages in, so they get everything that an employed person would be, it's a win-win because the money is there to do it. Um, and for the rest of our user base, um, it, it, it's an opt-in, but at the moment we want to start on that. It is there for you. And if that works, then I, I think that will be the future. I think we've, in a slight way, already addressed this question, right? but I still think it's worth revisiting, which is, so I th it seems that we're generally in favor of market-based solutions to these problems but if we think about things like pensions um, can can these really be completely self-service through platforms like Treasury or does the government need to change legislation nudge people I mean what is is the I suppose the question is is the government doing enough to create the framework for th for individuals to access find and and use the services that they need to provide for unemployment and holidays and and savings and retirement there's probably there's probably two things going on two certain things that are going on there one is here in the UK after auto-enrolment which has had some success obviously a journey in terms of getting people employees engaged with pensions 
one of the big focuses is the fact that the self-employed are not engaged with pensions and pension is pension coverage is falling as it grow you know as as self-employment grows traditionally a lot of self-employed use property as their as their kind of nest egg that's obviously becomes more and more difficult for newer generations um so certainly the government here department for pensions have been doing a lot of work on this over the last few years in terms of not just solving Obviously, the the simple answer should be well. All platforms should, or, or everybody who pay, everybody who pays these people should give them some money for a pension. But actually, that's you've got to actually make the products work first. Mm -hmm. So what they've been much more focused on has, and also who in this environment, who is the enroller, as it would be in the in the employment space, um, and you know how do you avoid the issue that if these people work across four different sources of income, they may not hit the threshold on any of those and just be left with nothing. So what they've more focused on initially has been doing testing in the market of, you know, what, you know first of all, um, attitudes to, self, to pensions within the self-employed and study out recently on the back of that in terms of most people do recognise they, they do need a pension and they don't have one, but also what is it that actually would help people get into them. So. You know, one of the big ones is variable income. You know, if you're if you're trying to do a private pension, it'll traditionally be a fixed monthly contribution. At any income with variable income, that that causes a reaction, and people will go, actually, I'll do it once a year. But then, of course, people don't do it. Um, the other one is the whole the whole concept because they don't have the other safety nets of locking the money away forever. So finding, you know semi-liquid solutions that actually people can access money. But also another one is actually if a self-employed person today wants to go and get a pension, they've actually got to go and find a financial advisor, e even online, and go through quite a complex process that takes a lot of brain space. If you're an employee, even pre-auto-enrollment, you had a fairly straightforward method to just go, actually, I want to contribute. Payroll, please contribute for me. So, so, th and really, when we look, when we think about pension, think about kind of all of those. Well, why should somebody have to make a fixed monthly contribution to their pension? And why, sh why can't self-employed have access to a simple occupational type pension like employees? And yes, then when they have the headspace to think they can engage with the pension and actually start thinking about, well, do they want to, do they want to think about different different investment strategies and things like that? But most of a lot of these self-employed, you know, on 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 mid to low earnings, actually just getting some savings going is important, and also working out, well, actually, are there things you can do by combining, whether it be savings products with pensions or whether it be even just not thinking about pensions and using in the UK things like lifetime ICES which actually might be more suitable for some people and just trying to think differently about it and then test with test with customers I think one thing that then is emerging with those kind of so there's nothing today in regulations that stops us doing that so it's just a matter of trying to find a way that works seeing it work and then see well actually with it working are there other things that you know government and policymakers can can change because there's no point in going to them with an idea if we if if we get something working and and can prove it's working then it gives them gives a template to actually take that forward it sounds like your description of government activity sounds like they're becoming a platform as well right in a way because they're adopting platform type 
approaches to innovation, you know, small experiments, testing. Yeah, so, so they're, they're engaging with industry, but not just traditional large financial service firms. They're engaging with fintechs as well around how do we find a different way. They're engaging with representative bodies, associations on the pension side to try and work out how they can, what are the different initiatives that might crack this. Because it's not going to, you know, self-employed is a fairly, you know, broad sector. We've got the kind of platform end, you've got all the way up to, high, you know, higher, higher earners and professionals, and different solutions will be required for different sectors. What about the, Gareth, the regu regulator? Because the regulator's actually been very progressive or even, you know, slash aggressive in, in forcing the industry to, to open up. So you would argue that the regulator's moved very quickly right? and pretty supportive too in um, FCA Innovate and their approach to sandboxing and so on they absolutely understand that the regulations that have been built up over 15-20 years probably themselves aren't quite enough to help you, you as financial services or you as fintechs build products that definitely work in a very regulated environment so why not come into the sandbox build it right in full view of the regulator who will work with you to construct the advice that they'll give as they go so that they they can build the regulations of the future based on the innovations of today and do you so think the UK regulator is particularly progressive still you regulator I know anything about um, <laughs> so. Uh, but I th uh, that approach of, so when you compare FCA to regulators of other essential services um, industries in the UK, I think they are uh, clearly the most focused on vulnerable customers, which um, uh, many people in this gap would fall into. Um, certainly their income is volatile enough that at any one point they might be in trouble of entering serious financial difficulty. Um, I think they're the most forward-thinking in terms of helping the industry that they regulate to innovate. Um, I think in other industries, some firms would find themselves in fear of their regulator rather than finding them a co-collaborator in building future products and services to help the customer base. So I, th I think the FCA are a pretty good example uh, of, of a regulator here. And if we just take an example of something they're working on at the moment in terms of almost going beyond their core regulatory piece, they're doing a big piece of work on intergenerational finance. And what does it mean? What does the, what does the, how does the financial industry need to evolve as the generations shift, as self-employment and gig work becomes more prevalent, as more and more people are in that space without the protections? So, you know, they've been, they've been doing a big kind of, dis, you know, discovery piece with industry and not both financial and non-financial industry around what does that mean for the future so that they can start thinking about what their regulations, is their changes going to be required to help that as it evolves over the next five, ten years. They're starting to look further out. Uh, we, we, sorry, if I could just try and yeah, please. analogy. My, my parents' generation were told and they really did believe that through their national insurance, there was an individual pot of money for them, for their pension and their sick pay, and it followed them around, which is a gigantic lie. It's just a tax that goes. But actually, for the first time ever, there is an opportunity for that to be what it is. Everyone has this benefit that follows them around. So we, we've had a lie for the past 100 years that this is what the situation has been, and it hasn't. But we've got the opportunity to make that a reality. So, penultimate question, Jonathan. So, you strike me as not just an optimist, but somebody who's actually working day to day to fix these problems. Do you think 
so all of us have talked about how this problem is being gradually sort of evolving over time and all of us or all of you have said that it's now come to a head and we're now starting to deal with it so what why how did it come to a head and do you think we're dealing with it kind of urgently enough how did it come to a head uh i suppose it comes to a head because enough people are in pain um and for, actually the the people we're talking about that i'm passionate about let's be honest are ignored virtually by everyone the, the chances are they're not that likely to vote because their time's taken up they haven't got a huge amount of money to spend so you can't sell them loads of stuff they're struggling day to day so they've been ignored for a very very long time and what we're seeing is a world falling apart at the moment because there is a lot of ignored people who are struggling and i, I think that has helped it bring it to head um, brexit uh, mr trump there are people crying for help going the life i expected isn't here please help me so i, I think it's quite good that you know suddenly we're, we're waking up and going oh there are these people you know people have got mold on the room all over their place that the landlords aren't fixing and they can't afford to move out no one's voiced these people and we're having to think is this the society we're wanting because it's falling apart in a lot of ways and on a very positive point of view we are having this conversation and we can shape the future where we can go it can be inclusive it doesn't have to be one the, the, the way i equate this and i've said it before mcdonald's have banned plastic straws because people went this isn't good ban plastic straws collectively we can go work should be decent fair and people should be supported and we can do that we can do that quite i haven't met a business owner who's a bad person who wakes up in the morning and goes how can i exploit staff today and i haven't met people who are lazy go how can i shirk work so if you work on the basis that you've got employers who want to do the right thing and people want to work hard the rest is actually quite easy we just need to make it happen okay so this is the final question. It's the same one to each of you, right? So one of the themes that we like to pick up a lot on this podcast is one where we think, a bit like you said earlier on, we think the whole notion of sort of, you know, tech backlash, tech pessimism should be debunked because there's no reason why it should necessarily follow that tech should lead to worse outcomes. Because I agree with you. I think if, you know, tech is in the hands of people, people are generally good, right? So from each one of your perspectives... Tell us why you're optimistic about the future. We're going to go, um, this won't help our listeners, but we're going to go counterclockwise, starting with you, uh, Garrett. I think one of the key things tech does is used right, it enables us to serve, it enables solutions to be provided to these people at a granularity that actually was just never possible in the past. And there's one of the reasons they were ignored because they were never a, profit, you know, a profitable customer base because they were too different and too dispersed, whereas technology allows you to shift the cost, you know, the cost of servicing them so dramatically that you can do things differently. And I think that, and, 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 and that is using technology, that's using data correctly and ethically, and actually that to act for the customer's benefit. I think as a risk of technology being the main way that these benefits are deployed is that people who aren't as connected with technology or digitally are left behind. I think the reason I'm optimistic about the future is 
technology isn't the thing that everybody's been a big naysayer about anymore. They're, they're kind of accepting it's here to stay and it's coming more. How can we make sure everybody's included? So at least they're asking that question. And you have big organisations committing to keeping their branch networks open because local communities need physical presence in the high street. You have uh, organisations thinking about how can we make sure that if not everybody has broadband connectivity in their home, they at least have it on their high street and things like that. So I, I'm... I'm optimistic because um, consumer groups are no longer saying boo technology, no it's bad, and are now saying yay technology, how can we make sure all of our consumer base, all of our client base are included. So they're, they're engaging with it differently and I think they as consumer groups and the consumers they represent have some of the answers within them uh, and business, government and civil society can work together to make sure nobody gets left behind as technology does help, help bring the future in. Mm. I'd, I'd probably say Cadbury's. Uh, so, weird answer. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Industrial Revolution um, brought massive change, absolute massive change. And you had some bad factories, and you had some good factories, and you had people like Cadbury's who was very forward thinking. It was called Roundtree back then. Uh, yeah, Roundtree's. And, and Cadbury's. Yeah, they, okay. And they built towns and villages for their people and looked after them and actually they thrived because of it so yes the industrial revolution shook everything up but by people doing and leading the right way they had profitable businesses and drove society in the right direction and I think we're at that point again yeah great so I suppose to summarize it's obvious that we're going through a massive structural shift but there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic that at the end state of this structural shift, things will be much better for everybody, but particularly those people that have been overlooked and ignored for a long time. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. That was a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.